Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to stay on top of all the latest news from China in only a few minutes a day through our email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, or at the website at subchina.com. SubChina offers uncensored reporting from and about China, and you can read about everything from the media policy to the Me Too movement, from the U.S.-China trade war to China's ongoing draconian repression of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. We're sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm in Washington, D.C. this week. Joining me from fabled Goldcorn Holler, where the air is sweet, the grass is green, and the necks of the locals are a vibrant and appealing shade of bronze, is, of course, Jeremy Goldcorn, <laughs> editor-in-chief of SubChina. Jeremy, greet the good people, won't you? Hello, 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 Kaiser. Hello, good people. <laughs> you, oh, dear. Oh, dear. Okay, well... Let's yeah. let's jump in. No, in November, uh, news from China really shook the world again, uh, dominating headlines really until the dramatic arrest in, in Canada of Huawei's CFO Meng Wanzhou, and that you know grabbed everyone's attention and shifted it away. But you know, in late November, the big news was that a U.S. trained Chinese scientist named He Jianhui had claimed that he had edited the genes of twin babies born in China earlier that month, altering a gene that codes for a protein used by common forms of HIV, which is of course the virus that causes AIDS. Uh, to access cells. And so this edit, this gene edit using CRISPR, he claims effectively immunizes the babies against most forms of HIV. Uh, This was not the first time that human genes have been edited using this technology, CRISPR-Cas9, but uh, it was the first time, if his claims are indeed true, that the germline itself had been edited and children born with their genomes altered. A significant difference. Reaction to the news was almost uniformly outraged. This isn't surprising coming from Western scientists, including from Rice University in Houston, uh, where her had studied. Uh, but in China, where conversations about the ethics of technology aren't as common as in the West, it was remarkable that her's announcement was greeted with such condemnation, not only by the scientific community, but also by officialdom. Institutions and individuals associated with He Jiankui quickly moved to distance themselves from him and to disavow connection with him and knowledge of his work. So we're delighted to be joined again uh, by one of the best writers covering science in contemporary China, Christina Larson. Christina has written extensively on China's genetic science, uh, along with many other topics related to science, uh, technology. And it was a team of AP reporters who broke He Jiankui's story, claiming that the birth of these twin girls with edited genes uh, had, had happened. And she's worked on quite a number of articles related to this. Christina recently left Beijing and has moved here to Washington, D.C., now writes 
writes for AP after a stint with Bloomberg and earlier work with numerous science publications, uh, Science Nature, uh, the MIT Technology Review, and uh, Foreign Policy, of course, before that, where she was an editor. Christina, welcome to Seneca, and welcome back to the USA and our little community of repatriated Americans. Hey, thanks, Geyser and Jeremy. Christina, great you could join us. Let's start with a layperson's explanation for what the CRISPR-Cas9 technology actually does. It seems like I've only really heard talk of this for the last four years or so, but it seems to have advanced very rapidly. What does it do? Okay, so CRISPR is a powerful tool for changing the structure of DNA. If scientists can change the structure of DNA, they can also change its function. CRISPR refers to the specialized structures of DNA, and Cas9 is an enzyme that can cut strands of DNA in specific places. For shorthand, we often call this technology gene editing, but that's a little bit misleading in that it's much easier to cut away or delete part of DNA than it is to write new scripts. Mm. So CRISPR was first developed about six years ago in 2012, so that m- means it might actually be younger than the Seneca podcast. Well, you know, I mean, I'll throw something, you know, I, I know editors who are much better at cutting and deleting than at actually, like, giving you better words. <laughs> so sure, it's not sure. that yeah, inaccurate. Yeah, yeah, no, the, yeah, the, the, reason, the reason I mentioned that, and this might be outside of what we'll talk about today, is questions like, can you create complex traits? Yeah, like, yeah. could you genetically modify someone's intelligence is a much bigger question involving many more spots on the genome that can you affect a particular spot linked to a particular disease. That's just what I wanted to to specify. Um, But CRISPR, you're right, Jeremy, it's moved really fast in part because it's really easy to use. You don't have to build a space station or a particle accelerator to get started. Um, I recently saw a a scientist who teaches high school who who I follow on social media talking about how he was demoing CRISPR for his high school students. Oh my God. His, <laughs> his, aim, his aim was to actually say, we have to start really early on talking about not just how you do something, but the ethics of it. Right. But it's just a completely different ballpark than, let's say, you know, sending a man to Mars. Yeah, wow. So, so Christina, CRISPR-Cas9 is still far from perfect, and, and there's still a lot of things that can, can go wrong. Uh, can you explain what some of those are? Um, you know, because I mean, I'm sure this is going to come up in the discussion about what Hu Jinkui did and, and the twins. Sure. So in CRISPR, there's a ton of unknowns. And in fact, with any technology or medicine, there's a lot of unknowns. That's why scientists generally start off testing something in a lab, then in mice, then in other animals, then in humans, and then publish their work in peer-reviewed journals. Right. So Hu Junkwe did not publish his preclinical research on CRISPR or this particular experiment in any peer-reviewed journals, which is one of the things that really alarmed a lot of scientists mm. and raised a bunch of questions. So to your question, there's a bunch of unknowns about what happens when you snip DNA in a particular place and the potential for immediate off-target impacts or unintended consequences. And there's also unknowns about what would happen over time, things that you might not be able to see detect immediately at a molecular level that will become evident as an animal grows. So uh-huh. for example, a recent Wall Street Journal piece about gene editing in farm animals showed what that might mean. Farm animals like pigs, cows, and rabbits are already being edited for traits like not growing horns and adapting to warmer climates. But some of these animals also exhibited unintended unusual characteristics like enlarged tongues and extra vertebrae. Oh, man. So those are some pretty serious genetic mistakes. And 
This is why a lot of scientists have condemned Hu Zhangkui's actions editing human babies at this stage when so little is known as human experimentation. So you, you didn't even know, I mean, when these, these rabbits or pigs or, or cows were, were younger animals that they were going to have these extrovert or they were going to, you know, not grow, grow or whatever, whatever the mutations were. These didn't express until later. So it's possible that these gene edited babies could still express like weird yeah oh god right it's 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 uh, basically a experiment in the running by the way i just um googled crispr and uh, first hit was a website selling reagents and enzymes for use in crispr so your comment about how easy it was to use apparently it's very easy to buy too um oh my gosh the question kaiser you better make sure jeremy doesn't jump ship on Seneca for his new side gig (laughs) doing uh, bathroom science yeah it's goldcorncrispr.com and uh if you use the uh (laughs) code Seneca you get a 10% uh, off your CRISPR kit. Um, Anyway, uh, enough of the levity. Christina, can you compare the state of CRISPR in China and the United States, the the sort of cutting-edge research? Can you compare them in absolute terms? Sure. Well, CRISPR was developed about six years ago in the United States at MIT and UC Berkeley. And today the big research hubs are in the US, UK, and China. So there are trials underway in each of these countries to use CRISPR to modify crops and livestock. It's important, I think we should say, that CRISPR isn't only a tool for modifying human DNA, but for all DNA. Um, And there have been a couple efforts at gene editing pet dogs in China. As for CRISPR trials on humans, on adult humans, there's a lot of research in each of these countries. For example, at the University of Pennsylvania, there are trials using CRISPR to modify immune cells to make them more adept at attacking cancers like melanoma, Uh and similar trials underway in China, quite a number actually. But I think, Jeremy, what you're really asking is about the state of human embryo gene editing, using gene editing tools before a child is even born. And that's illegal pretty much everywhere. There's research in the UK, for example, at the Crick Institute in London to modify human embryo cells in the lab. The goal is to learn more about the very early stages of human development. But they wouldn't implant those. But it's illegal to implant those in a woman's womb. And in the U.S., the laws are even stricter than in the U.K. Government funding can't support even lab research on human embryos. Scientists in the U.S. can do limited research, but they have to use private funding. And certainly gene-edited babies are effectively banned because you would need approval from the FDA, which it's almost certainly not going to give at this stage. Uh, So, So Christina, my question was a little more than that. Because of this uh, difference, does that mean that Chinese scientists are going to be uh, forge ahead with CRISPR technology because their research has fewer boundaries? So in China, there's a 2003 law against human cloning, There's no law as in something that's been passed by the National People's Congress against human gene editing, but the Ministry of Health passed a ministerial guideline a few years ago that says that edited human embryos shouldn't be allowed to grow beyond about 14 days, Hmm. actually similar to the UK. And now, in the wake of Hu's experiment, lots of ministries in China are saying that this guideline from the Ministry of Health is legally binding and that what Hu did did cross a red line. So it's not the case that China is exactly a free-for-all, even if Hu found a way to get this done in China. 
Oh, that's 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 fascinating. Uh, let's talk about Hu, the scientist who's mm-hmm. at the very heart of this. Uh, what do we know about him? About the previous work that he's done? About you know why and under what circumstances he actually returned to China? You know about his motivations for doing what he claims to have done, and and maybe what some insights you might have about the guy's personality because you've spoken to him. Uh, unlike many reporters, you've actually interviewed him. Yep. Um, so Hu was born in 1984. He- wow, he's young. We got. He told us that his parents were farmers. I'm not 100% sure about that. Um, But basically, he followed a common path for young scientists of his generation. He graduated from the University of Science and Technology in China. He moved to the U.S. for graduate studies. He got a Ph.D. in biophysics at Rice University. And then he spent a year as a postdoctoral research fellow at Stanford. His Stanford advisor, Stephen Quake, spoke to the AP and described him as super bright. Um, And then in 2012, Hu came back to China to take up a post at the Southern University of Science and Technology, which is a really new institution that's only opened about a year ago and is partly funded by the government of Shenzhen. So we met him on the campus of this university, which is brand new, sprawling campus, new buildings. He's in the same, his lab was in the same building as one of the fastest supercomputers in China, just to give you a a mental picture of the environment that he's working in. Um, So according to his resume, he was named part of the central government's A Thousand Talents program. Yeah. And who has also started a couple biotech companies with mixed success, but he's raised millions of dollars from both U.S. and Chinese investors. So he has a pretty scarce publishing record in peer-reviewed journalists as a scientist, peer-reviewed journalists, but he's yeah. not an unknown guy as a businessman, which is a sort of an odd thing. <laughs> as a businessman, so what's his business? Uh, what was he doing? Uh, he has some genetic sequencing businesses. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, so in in adjacent fields. Um, so I met him in Shenzhen in October of this year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he seemed like a clever, self-confident guy. And he actually reminded me of a lot of tech entrepreneurs I've met, both in China and the U.S. He was cheerful, energetic, and he seemed like he was really in a hurry. Yeah, yeah. He'd filed, he said he filed patents already on these CRISPR techniques in both China and the U.S., even though the results are unknown. Um, and in the clinical trial registration documents, which is what he filed uh, in China to state that he was doing this work, he said he thought that his work, would, this is a quote, surpass the 2010 Nobel Prize, which was awarded for the development of IVF. So as a journalist, I don't want to pretend too much to be in this guy's head, but I'll let you draw your own conclusions about the kind of person who makes statements like that. Yeah, well, there's um, some hubris. Yeah, but something something else I wanted to, to say, um, just that we learned during a visit in Shenzhen, um, that's not about the end result of the science, but the process behind it that I was, I felt quite important. Uh-huh. Um, Hood played fast and loose with the idea of an ethical review board, which is really a cornerstone of modern mainstream science. It's meant to prevent horrible things like the Tuskegee experiments from happening again. The Tuskegee experiments in the U.S. are when the U.S. government um, conducted trials on how syphilis would proceed in low-income African-Americans without informing them they were part of that. And there was a huge outcry and a debate that, you know, science has to be ethical. We have to have 
reviewers in place. We have to have all these questions that we ask before any kind of experiment involving humans would happen. And I think most scientists believe that ethical review boards have a really important place in modern science. Um, but who is an ethical review board also is sometimes called an institutional review board in different countries. Mm-hmm. But instead of going to the ethics board at his own hospital in Shenzhen, Ho went around them and he got sign off from a different hospital, one that was not involved in the study. And the team of AP reporters uh, that I was a part of, we went and we met the founder of that hospital called Harm- Harmonicor. Um, this guy's name was Lin Zitong. And he was also the chair of the ethics board, or at least that's what he told us. Uh-huh. And he told us quite proudly that he wasn't a doctor or a scientist, but a hospital property developer. And he told us how many hospitals <laughs> really his family... Yeah, he told board. us how many fa- hospitals his family controlled that were listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And Chinese media later reported that Lin's company had been an investor in one of Hu's companies. So this was quite outside the expectation as a scientist journalist about what I thought would be the checks and balances about ethics. Right. The guy's an investor in one of those companies. I mean, there's... Yeah. And there's a bunch of other questions we can get to later, like the fact that the, the consent form for patients referred to this trial as an AIDS vaccine development program, which isn't quite right. The embryologist in his lab said that not all the doctors who were participating had even been informed that this involved gene editing. So there were a lot of things about the process that we uncovered that raised questions. Raised questions. To, yeah, you know, that's me being the that's journalist, a right? So, Christina, let's let's talk about what exactly he he claims to have done or he did do. Uh, how long has medical science known first that a certain ge- genetic mutation uh, confers immunity against certain forms of HIV? Okay, so what he did. So the CCR5 receptor is a protein on the surface of white blood cells. And it's one pathway by which HIV can infiltrate these cells. And these cells play a role in the human immune system. So Hu claimed to have altered the gene that creates this protein, thereby shutting down this pathway. It's not at all an assurance of HIV resistance, but more like closing one door. And other scientists have also worked on this kind of change in the lab. So the work that Hu's trial did wasn't actually introducing a new idea or scientific method. His innovation, if you will, was finding a way to take this from the lab to the delivery room. And it's also worth noting that other research indicates that tweaking this CCR5 receptor could have other adverse effects. So he wasn't the one who discovered that there was a certain codon that codes for the CCR5 or that switches it on and off. No, he, not at all. That was already well known. And so, yeah, yeah he, right. he so was, he was, sta- he was standing on the shoulders of giants, if right, you will. Right, right, right. So he just did what no one else would dare to do, really. Is that right? Right. So I'm, I'm curious, though. Uh, do we know whether or stopping that gene from expressing to, to to turn that protein on, to make that p- protein available, does that have other effects? I mean, it must exist for some other reason except to bind, you know, to HIV, right? We right. don't know, right? Well, well, other trials or other studies have shown that tweaking the CCR5 receptor could have adverse effects, like increasing susceptibility to West Nile virus or influenza. Uh. So oh, okay. wow. there are there likely are more than one things that happen, although we haven't seen this play out in a human being before to fully know. Hmm. Hmm. What do we actually know about 
how he found these subjects for the experiment. I mean, I mean, how upfront was he with with these people? I mean, did, did he tell them what he was intending to do exactly? I mean, I guess he he met the actual patients through an AIDS activist organization uh, that was based in Beijing, and I guess he sought out an HIV positive father or would-be father, and a an HIV-negative mother. I, I guess I, I don't understand why that was necessary, why that specific combination was needed, or, or how he found these people, or what he told them. Okay. What do you know about that? He met the people who participated in this study through an HIV advocacy group in Beijing called Bai Hua. And we met the founder of this group, who seemed like a sincere activist. Mm-hmm. Basically, what they do is they create chat groups on WeChat and other things to connect people of similar concerns. So how to come out as HIV positive to your parents, how to yeah, how to deal with a child who's sick, right? All these sorts of questions that people might share. So through this, they identified couples where the man was HIV positive, but the woman was not. And eventually seven couples participated in this trial. Mm. Um, but to step back... I now wonder if this having the HIV positive person's parents wasn't so much about the science, but about giving a bit of ethical justification for a risky effort. Because it's important to note that this experiment wasn't about preventing the transmission of HIV in utero from parent to child. There's already a pretty standard technique in IVF called sperm washing, where the semen fluid that carries HIV is removed before the sperm is implanted. So whose proposition to the participating couples wasn't, I will prevent your child from being born with HIV. It was, your child will be less likely to get HIV as he or she grows up. Oh, interesting. So it wasn't medically necessary that this person be HIV positive. It was that they, he thought there would be a higher chance of them wanting to take part in this experiment because he's familiar, they're familiar with the dangers of HIV. Interesting. And also the study participants, they had access to free IVF for participating in this trial. And as you know, IVF is an expensive procedure in any country and certainly out of reach of a lot of poor families in China. So without having interviewed all of the couples who participated in this study, it's really difficult to say what motivators are strongest for them. Sure. Christina, let's talk about the ethics issues surrounding CRISPR and especially about using it on humans. The abhorrence of what could easily become full, full-blown CRISPR-powered eugenics is obviously part of it. So perhaps you could start there. <laughs> okay, Jeremy. Well, tell me what kind of ethical nightmare you want to talk about first. <laughs> well, I guess there are know. a lot of different ways you could take well, the I think conversation. We all, we all take it back immediately to, to Hitler and the you know, Nazis. We know what the Aryans would have done with this, right? You know, They would have all looked like you, right? Blondes with blue eyes, Christina. Well, I mean, I think... Oh, uh, I mean, Frankenstein, obviously, is the original uh, monster of our imaginations. But yeah, and then eugenics. Not I guess Frankenstein. Those Frankenstein's monster, Jeremy. Frankenstein's yeah, no, monster. Oh, I mean, I'm sorry. Oh, my God. The internet's going to kill me. That? Frankenstein's monster. I mean, I think the, the the immediate ethical issue is, right, what's been done to these children who will grow up with unknown consequences to, uh, you know, to... to because of their DNA being altered. Um, I mean, I think that before people leap into this idea that, oh my God, we're going to have designer babies where everybody, you know, has a perfect SAT score, there's a big leap in the science between turning on or off a particular part of a gene and engineering 
complex traits. So that's right. one thing. The other thing I think that's important to to say is that this experiment aside, there are a lot of mainstream scientists and bioethicists who think that CRISPR will and should have a role in the future to prevent severe inherited diseases that we have no other way to treat. For example, Huntington's disease is often mentioned as a case. So I think there's going to be a big ethical debate going forward about all these different aspects good, bad, what's necessary, what's not necessary. But in this, in this particular case, the, the ethical problem, I, I, as far as I understand from what you've said, there are two, of, mm-hmm. two major ones. The one is that the uh, whole procedure did not follow uh, accepted scientific convention uh, in terms of submitting to ethics boards, selection of subjects, and everything else. The second right. major problem is that there are now two little girls in the world with altered genes who nobody knows what problems they may have because of what the her did to them. Right. And, those are those are two And it was completely unnecessary. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty bad what he yeah, did. Yeah. yeah. And I mean I'll I'll let you speculate about what our Galatica future might be. <laughs> um <laughs> but that, you know, I'm sure we'll have future podcasts about that. But yes, I mean certainly this experiment raises the idea that holy cow, science moves way faster than regulation. And could we have something that's already real before we've even made decisions about what should be done? So besides the bioethics issues around this, there's the question of this, the dodgy science involved in Hu's, you know, misguided project. Uh, what, strictly from the point of view of good scientific practices, did he do wrong? And besides not submitting to an ethics review board or uh, I mean, just, just as a scientist, he... he okay, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think we, we should start with the, with the ethics board. That's one. Um, not publishing peer-reviewed research of the pre- preclinical trials is two. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently deceiving some of your collaborators using euphemisms on a patient consent form. Um, yeah, there's also... vaccine or whatever. It was not vaccination at all, right? Right, right. And, and we don't know how effective this is. But there's also evidence from the information that Hu presented at a human gene editing summit in Hong Kong in, November, in late November that only half of the intended genes were edited in one of the two twins. Uh. Um, and a lot of scientists were quick to point out, oh my goodness, how did he allow this embryo to be implanted when it had such mosaicism right right and we don't know what the effects of that will be yet but these are all questions that (laughs) people have had so um so one of the people that ap interviewed eric topol who's the head of the scripps research translational institute in california He told us, if you're going to do something this controversial and this early, and you want to be a leader of this movement, you need to do it in an exemplary way. And any way you slice it, I think that what we see here was not an exemplary way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Christina, I was pleasantly surprised that He got so little support from the Chinese community. He was met with almost universal opprobrium within China, from the state media, social media, the scientific community, from officials as well. Did that surprise you? <laughs> well, I guess you could say the list of Chinese ministries and groups investigating Hu is longer than his publication record now. <laughs> so, yeah, the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, Chinese Academy of Sciences, National Commission on Health, Shenzhen City, whose own University have all condemned him. 
But to be honest, Jeremy, when an official body makes noises and says it's launching an investigation, as a longtime journalist in China, I, I would say it's hard to know what that means, really. But maybe more interesting to me was the discussion on social media, which I'm sure that you guys followed really closely. A lot of normal people trashed her. They said his work was immoral, he was arrogant, he was giving other scientists a bad name. And that response felt really immediate and really visceral and unplanned, and I don't think would have been in any way directed by the Chinese government. So these these two aspects of Chinese society, official dumb, but also popular sentiment converging. And, and other scientists. I mean, me. th- weren't there many other scientists, not not officials? Yep, there who- was a there was a letter by signed by over a hundred Chinese scientists that condemned what Hu did. And I think having interviewed a lot of Chinese scientists over the years, um, a lot of these are, you know, moral upstanding people who are trying to do good work. And the rest of the world has this idea sometimes that Chinese scientists play loose. And and here's an example, but they really don't want what he did to tarnish Chinese science writ large. And I think that's another dynamic that we're watching play out. Right, that people want to defend the fact that you can do good science in China, even if you have some bad examples. So, what did He himself say in his own defense? I mean, he must have directly addressed the criticism. I mean, he he must have also known he was about to unleash a total firestorm, and he must have you know been ready to to, to say something. What what did he say? Well, uh, the, so the first time that the world at large heard from Ho directly was in these YouTube videos right. that he released shortly before this conference. And Ho attempted to portray himself as someone who did this because he was really concerned about people with AIDS in poor countries. But I don't think most people really buy that line because, you know, honestly, IVF is not how you're going to treat rare communicable diseases, maybe inherited diseases. But that aside... You know, when Ho spoke at the gene editing conference in Hong Kong a few days after releasing these videos, he presented his work and scientists asked him some questions. For example, they asked him about the ethical consent procedure. And Ho said that he had been the one who got the consent from the parents. In fact, you're supposed to have someone who's specially trained, who is not the director of the lab to to get ethical consent. And so he answered these questions matter-of-factly, sort of, it wasn't clear if he knew sometimes. Sometimes he knew that he was breaking a norm. In some cases, it wasn't clear if he had registered that this was not the way people expected him to behave. He also said, I feel proud. So he wasn't repentant at all. And, you know, I think that to him, it was important to be first He was first, whatever other conversation follows from that. You know, Nature, uh, a very respected scientific publication, just released a list of 10 people who mattered in 2018. They put Hu on the list. (laughs) Of course, the write-up had a lot of criticism of what he did, but, you know, he's still on those lists. So he hasn't hung his head in shame at all. Hmm. You know, I mean, Jeremy pointed out, and I've often noted in talks I've given about the fact that there's just not that much discussion of of, of ethics um, in China when it comes to, you know, the pursuit of some of these very disruptive cutting-edge technologies, you know. There's ordinarily, I guess I'd call it a pretty cavalier attitude. And, you know, for something like 
artificial intelligence, say, uh, you don't have the leading technologists and even a lot of the leading scientists out there in public talking about, you know, as Elon Musk or Bill Gates have done or the late Stephen Hawking have done, talking about, you know, summoning the demon, to use Musk's phrase. Uh, so I, I was I was surprised, like, like Jeremy was, you know, by the reaction within China to his work. Do you think this is a watershed uh, that's going to lead to a broader conversation about the potential hazards of, you know, this this whole devil-may-care pursuit of, of technologies like AI, like advanced robotics, like genetic engineering? You know, you, you mentioned, uh, uh, what was the name of the experiment you said where, where uh, the syphilis was done? That, that's oh, the in, Tuskegee experiments yeah, in the, the United Tuskegee, States. It, could that be, this, this is a Tuskegee moment for China. Mm, that's a good question. There's a bunch of things you raise. First to the question of why there's not a robust discussion in China. As you guys know, censorship is a huge a huge restraint on how people can have open dialogues about things and it's not only uh it's not only a restriction in terms of, you know, be, people being able to criticize the government, but people being able to have public conversations to come to some kind of consensus about new technologies. There's, there really isn't the space to do that in China. I don't think that it's that's such a, a topic that gets censored. But I think that more than that, it's just like there, there's you know been this development of technology and better lives in such lockstep that they're just not they're not aware, they're not at that point where you know it, it has become worrisome. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways to slice this debate. And for me, I, I think less honestly about the line between the U.S. and China, but maybe the line between scientists and tech entrepreneurs. Uh, so ideally, yeah. scientists have peer review and ethical review boards, and technology companies have trade secrets and product launches in beta because presumably the stakes are lower if it's a social media app. But things get messier in medicine when it's a life or death technology. Sure, you can't yeah. release something like that in beta. So I think... As I said, having spoken to a lot of individual scientists in China who are sincerely concerned about bioethics, even if they aren't engaging the public at large, I think that for myself, that maybe the difference isn't so much that individual scientists are more or less moral in different countries, but that China has a porous regulatory structure, and that allows outliers or rogue actors to get further and faster, and they get away with a lot more before they get shut down. So right. maybe that's what needs to change if if something is going to change. That's an interesting take on it. It's, it is. It's that line between the technologists, or I'm uh, sorry, between the scientists and the kind of Tech entrepreneur types, right? Right, move yeah. fast and break things. Exactly, yeah. But, I, I mean, one can't divorce that from society at large either. I mean, China generally teaches you to play, you know, fast and loose, to do stuff first and ask for permission later. Um, right. You know, I, I've, it's, I'm still um, struggling to adjust to the United States where generally the rules are mean rules, like you park in the parking place and you stop at the stop sign. <laughs> and, I, you know, I, you don't drive on the shoulder of the highway. <laughs> I, 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 I'm I, sorry, it's been a tough transition for you, Jeremy. It's very <laughs> difficult for me to learn to, you know, <laughs> obey the rules. So I, I think, you know, it's, it's a very big problem. But let's go back to um, the American connection, uh, Christina. What about the invol uh, involvement of her uh, Rice University advisor, Michael Deem? 
What do we know about how much he knew or didn't know? Because you actually spoke to him, didn't you? So what did he say? Michael Deem spoke to one of my colleagues at AP before we published our story. And he said he'd been directly involved in his gene editing experiment. He said he'd flown to China and been present when the participating couples gave their consent, although Deem does not speak Chinese. And he said that he'd been an architect of this ethics approval process. Now, Deem is a physics professor at Rice University, not somebody who works on clinical trials in the U.S. Um, And since the story's come out, Deem's lawyers have told other media that Dean was not involved in the way he said he was involved. So, uh, and meanwhile, (laughs) Rice has launched an investigation into what's happening with Dean. Um, But interestingly, Dean was set to take on a new faculty position at a university in Hong Kong in January. And we contacted the university and they said that uh, right now they're waiting to see what the results of Rice's own investigation will be and whether or not that goes forward. But it looks like Deem uh, had thought that he was uh, on route to Hong Kong in 2020. Interesting. I, I mean, this is just sort of part of a large thing. I, I mean, I'm not pointing to Michael Deem in particular, but I, in my own reporting over, over many years, my sense is that there were a lot of uh, people in the pharmaceutical industry in biopharma who kind of appreciate the fact that you can really play fast and loose in China. There are a lot of, you know, there's a permissive you environment. That in, you see that in architecture too, right? Yeah, All the wacky too. buildings that might be too dangerous to build in Germany or the U.S. have you been think built they in They kind of see China like a, a playground kind of? Right. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, to draw a crude analogy... American companies previously put work, you know, outsourced factory work to China, knowing that there were labor violations and yeah. Yeah. So this, this difference in regulations, you know, it's something that people can try to take advantage of. Mm, And that's, so yeah, I think, I think it's really important to say what happened here isn't just something that happened in China and from a distance, you know, we shake our fingers, but that Hu had sought out the advice of lots of people inside, especially outside China, actually, before he did this. And, you know, as you said, with this experiment and with a lot of other things in the technology space, artificial intelligence, right? I mean, there's ideas, people and money moving between the US and China. It's Things rarely these days happen in only one country, and that's the end of it. Christina, what about He Jianghui's fate? Did he return to Shenzhen after his talk at the Human Genome Editing Summit in Hong Kong? He did, Jeremy. And if you know exactly where he is and how he's doing, please let me know. My editors <laughs> would love to know. <laughs> um, there were rumors that he was taken into custody, but that seems not to have been true. Um, but he did go back to Shenzhen, and right now we're all waiting to see uh, if there's teeth in any of these investigations and what his future will be. Um, but yeah, if you have tips, let me know. Uh, he's not responding to emails. He's not responding. He responded to phone. one email from the Harvard Crimson. Uh, from the Crimson? <laughs> yeah. Um, but he has <laughs> not been reader. responding to most mainstream media attempts to reach mm-hmm. him. That's That's a pity. Uh, that's fascinating. Uh, one last question. I mean, I, I can't help but wonder, you know, in, in the, a rush to condemn He uh, and his work, 
which I totally understand. I, there's maybe a danger of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. I mean, CRISPR can certainly be abused, obviously, but it's it's also a pretty promising technology when it comes to addressing, you know, certain genetic genetic afflictions, you know, that really do plague a big portion of mankind. Uh, maybe in hindsight, years from now, we're going to see the real tragedy of He Jianhui as the fact that he ended up setting back research. Um, that's it. That's something that a lot of scientists uh, are discussing and worried mm. about. Certainly, a lot of of scientists believe that the future will see CRISPR used for reducing the occurrence of severe inherited diseases that we have no other way to treat. Um, again, Huntington's disease is one example that's mentioned often, and they are worried that a backlash against her might make governments tighten regulations that would make it harder to pursue research toward this end. Uh, in the meantime, CRISPR is also used uh are being tested um, for use in adults, not for editing the germline, but, you know, basically therapeutic use of CRISPR to enhance the ability of white blood cells to fight cancer and Mm. other things. So there are a lot of potential medical uses that some scientists will will strongly defend, although, you know, at this stage, everything is in a stage of, of being tested, but a lot of people don't want to see all those tests shut down prematurely. I totally understand that. Uh, Christina, thanks so much for taking the time to to talk with us. Let's go on to recommendations. Uh, Before we do that, I do want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina. And if you enjoy the Seneca Podcast, all the other shows in our network, like the fantastic Tech Buzz and the Sysian Seneca Business Brief, and the wide-ranging content on SupChina, the best thing you can do is sign up for SupChina Access. Uh, Your support makes it possible for us to keep bringing you reporting, conversations, videos, all of it. Uh, now, let's move on to recommendations. And uh, Jeremy, as is our our uh, tradition, you may begin. Okay, I've um, started moving house, and uh, like I have Yay. boxes that uh, haven't been opened since uh, I left Beijing. Um, and so I'm going through old books, and I started reading The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins, uh, which is oh, sort of related classic. to today's uh, topic. And it was a, a little before he became a sort of malicious atheist, and it's focused on um, uh, ev- the science of evolution as uh, seen kind of through the the lens of, a, of genes, where, you know, he looks at the way genes are passed down and animals and uh, organisms are just kind of the vessel that lets the genes <laughs> reproduce and pass themselves down. Anyway, it's a really good, accessible book about um, evolution and genetics. It's also old. It's from the 80s or something, right? Yeah, it's very old. I, I think uh, I read it in high school, so that must have been in like the 1930s or something. <laughs> Great. Richard Dawkins, pre-militancy. No, I think he was already kind of militant. I mean, the you know. So it was before, in other words, it was before you really took a shine to him, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, I mean, being militant is one thing. Being a, a one-trick pony and only having one note to sing is another, right? Right, 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 right. Christina, what do you have for us? Uh, well, in a similar vein, Carl Zimmer's book, mm. um, she has her mother's laugh, which is a which is a you know, basically a continuation of of the discussion that we've had today. Um, it's about inheritance and what you know what 
aspects are encoded in our DNA and what aren't. Um, but I feel like since Jeremy mentioned a similar book, I should offer another recommendation if I can. Sure. So absolutely. I wanted to recommend my AP colleagues in Beijing's recent work, um, tracing uh, products made in the forced labor camps in Xinjiang yeah. to sportswear companies in importing in the United States, right? <laughs> really, Statesville. Yeah, making a connection between what's happening in Xinjiang and, uh, and you know, what American consumers have access to. So stories moving rapidly, but they've been doing amazing work, and this is only the latest bit of their really strong effort to chronicle what's happening. I, I guess I'm pretty impressed with the way that company has responded. Badger Sportswear, yep. and, and they, they, they really, I guess, you know, it's it, it, one of the things that it shows is it's really difficult to to figure out exactly uh, where the supply, you know, the whole yep. supply chain, right? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I should say I didn't have a role in reporting that story, but it seems like they were as surprised as anyone else that their yeah, name was on that yeah, list. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm glad that they've responded with alacrity to that. Yeah, great, great set of stories. Uh, and maybe in the same vein, Emily Fung's piece from the Financial Times. Sure, and she, the New York she, Times she too. To right, break that. Um, my my recommendation is for a book by Jeff Gwynn called "The Road to Jonestown." Um, in November, we we observed the fortieth. It was the fortieth. Yeah, I guess it was forty years ago that the the Jonestown uh, massacre had happened in Guyana. And uh, I had really not known too much about about Jim Jones and the People's Temple. Uh, I heard a couple of radio interviews with the author, and I decided to buy this book. And it is, it's truly fascinating. Um, it's told quite dispassionately uh, because Jim Jones is a re- he's a really a, a sort of remarkable figure. I mean, I think that he was he suffered very deeply from mental illness, but you know, he was immensely charismatic. Uh, and I think in in a way that reminds me of you know, of of a lot of radical organizations from ISIS to the Muslim Brotherhood, they provided social services in a community. They were really quite sort of conscientious in some ways and laudable in a lot of ways uh, and, and also just deeply f***ed up in, in, in other ways. It's great. I, I was a, it's a really readable and, and horrifically tragic story about what happened, about how, uh, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I, I highly recommend it. The Road to Jonestown by Jeff Gwynn. Thanks, Christina. That was terrific. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to, to come talk to us about this very important issue. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks, guys. Jeremy, man, it was great to talk to you yeah, again. Thanks, Christina. Thanks, Kaiser. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn and edited by Jason McRonald and me. Special thanks this week to Jim Millward, who was kind enough to let us convert his dining room into a makeshift studio. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out the other podcasts in our network, the Saishin Seneca Business Brief, the Pandaily Tech Buzz China, New Voices, China Econ Talk, and Toffer Talk. More great shows coming soon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.